You're listening to How to Stan, the podcast all about both specific fandoms and fandom culture as a whole. For more information about the show and the other show that I do, 17 Karat K-Pop, visit 17karatkpop.weebly.com. You can also go to 17karatkpop.weebly.com backslash how to stand for more specific information about this podcast. Enjoy the show. In 2001, Lisa Ryan began blogging about The Daily Show. She posted regular clips from the show online, all the way up until 2005, and she said she had two main goals for posting this content. One was to just archive it, save it somewhere, to live in cyberspace forever. Second objective was to provide a space for fellow fans. The early aughts when people were actually just using the internet to have engaging conversations and wanted that sense of community. Message boards were all the rage, so she decided to get on the trend and create one to see if anyone else was as big a fan of The Daily Show as she was. Turns out a lot of people were. Although those clips started getting posted in 2001, her blogging itself really kicked into high gear in the summer of 2002. She really appreciated the show's criticism of the Bush administration's plans to go to war. She felt like, finally, I'm not crazy to think this is a bad idea. Her political and social viewpoints were seen as valid through that skewering of the opposition. She said, quote, The Daily Show was serving as a function that real news was supposed to serve, and they were the only people doing it. She posted up until 2005. So how did she end up getting permission to keeping the website going so long without copyright bans? Well, she suspects that the Daily Show team, quote, secretly loved what I was doing. And she has a point there. Why would they tell her to stop giving them free publicity, posting copyrighted clips online? After all, although blogging was becoming all the rage, the internet overall and dedicating your time to being on it was still a relatively new concept. So to really win people over and form community around a TV show, that type of fandom following was not cultivated easily. It's super easy now to start a chat room or something similar for your favorite piece of pop culture. Back then, it was more novel to decide, hey, there is a fandom here in a place to have a discourse about the show we all love. She wanted to pioneer that charge. Others picked up that mantle. In July 2006, D.B. Ferguson darted the No Fact Zone blog. She built a site with news coverage of Colbert, comment sections, places to chat with other fans, and watch segments of the show, contests, and even a map on the site so you could go all across the country and find out where you could buy Colbert's Americone Dream ice cream flavor. She really wanted a grassroots fandom to be seen, but not just because of a genuine desire to see that but because she had been disappointed by earlier attempts to make that happen. For example, there was a site called Colbert Nation, and when she realized and word got out that it was actually run by Comedy Central, it lost its allure. It became just this corporate product, and so she wanted to have a blog that was organically, truly, by and for fans. This continued. When, in July of 2007, she started a sister site called Colbert University. Sections of the site included electives, 
core curriculum, and final exam. The site said, quote, The goal of Colbert University is to serve as a permanent, accurate resource for those wishing to know more about the characters, terms, ideas, and world of the Colbert Report, and to inspire thoughtful analysis, as well as righteous enjoyment, of this groundbreaking experiment in interactive television. That use of the phrase, interactive television, I want you to put a pin in that for our discussion later. But that ethos was definitely a driver for some of these fans, and it's really interesting because although in Lisa's case, this passion for the show was driven because of her political preferences, in Ferguson's case, she actually considers the show to just be really well-done comedy. Whether it's about politics or not, they joke about and parody and comment on and satirize the news of the day in a way she just found impressive and comedic. She's actually commented before, apparently you'd be surprised to know how often the Colbert fans she talks to view themselves as totally not political. The show would make you think otherwise, but it's interesting how some of these viewers, in their minds, they do totally view their political preferences and their identities as fans of this show as entirely distinct things. Further making it seem like you can't blur the lines between activist and fan is a famous quote from Colbert. Quote, This show is not about me. No, this program is dedicated to you, the heroes. And who are the heroes? The people who watch this show. Average, hardworking Americans. You're the folks who say something has to be done. And you are doing something. You're watching TV. Various quotes from Colbert over the years kind of reinforce that joking sentiment about thank you for being a part of the show. What is he really saying there about the nature of fandoms when that's mixed with current events? Ultimately, that's what we're going to try to unpack today. So I'm going to share with you some of the most memorable moments from Colbert's show over the years, and then pull back and look at some bigger context to explain what the appeal is all about and what impact the show is really trying to have. Let's start by talking about what went down in August 2006. A bridge in Hungary was about to get a name, currently in the poll being taken to figure out who to name the bridge after. Chuck Norris was number one. Colbert would not have this, so he used his show to plead with fans, quote, do this as many times as you can, for multiple computers if you have to. Carpal Tunnel is a small price to pay for this gift to the Hungarian people, unquote. Fans heeded the call, using computer bots, and they really stuffed the ballot box. Hungary's population at the time was about 10 million, but 17 million votes came in for naming this bridge. It actually ended up being a whole null and void venture, though. The Hungarian government just decided no one alive should get a memorial bridge that goes against the concept of a memorial. But thanks to the press attention, a Hungarian ambassador did, did give Colbert what was called an honorary recognition. Second, his popularization of the term wikiality. Sort of like the Mandela effect, where a bunch of people believe something and all mutually agree, like, yeah, there's no way that didn't happen. We all have a memory of it. 
and it turns out to have been a false memory. Just somehow over time, people have convinced each other that something was a certain way, that a certain line was said in a movie, that a certain character in a show looked a certain way. Not even just pop culture related, although that is the case a lot, but just a collective false memory is formed. Where you really strongly think, no, it was definitely that way. And it turns out it wasn't. That's the Mandela effect, basically. Wikiality sounds like it's in the same vein. Making something up and convincing a whole bunch of people to go along with it as if it's real. So Colbert wanted to test the integrity of Wikipedia with this concept. Telling his viewers to all go to Wikipedia and change the data to say that the elephant population in Africa had somehow tripled in the past six months. But he said, quote, Together we can create a reality we can all agree on. The reality we just agreed on. Someone did heed this call. A user by the name Stephen Colbert edited a Wikipedia page to claim the elephant population had tripled in the last six months, and no one really investigated. Wikipedia's founder, Jim Wales, was actually asked to comment on this, and he just said, quote, We have a sense of humor, and if we wanted to, we could figure out if it was really him, but why bother? We banned the user because of his or her behavior, because they were messing around with some articles and encouraging other people to mess with several articles about elephants, unquote. There was no confirmation or denial, however, about if the user going by that name actually was the Stephen Colbert or someone associated with the show. Could have been a fan, could have been no one, but an interesting viral incident nonetheless. Lastly, for now, there is what I would argue is a really well done, both educational and funny, breakdown of what a super PAC is on one episode about 10 years ago. Quick background, in 2010, the Citizens United court decision in the USA made sure that it was the law of the land that basically corporations are people too which basically opened the floodgates for tons of secret and massive campaign donations given by companies. Corporations were viewed as people. They can make donations as big as they want to. Obviously, that's a super, super summarized version of what the court case said, but money talks and people talk. People have a voice protected by law and corporations are made of people. So corporations have a voice and can spend money politically as they wish. So Colbert basically did this sketch, creating a fake hack, political action committee. And I can't do the segment justice just by talking about it, but trust me when I say it actually is way funnier than it sounds. But he decided he would have this Colbert pack with the slogan, Americans for a better tomorrow, tomorrow. He filled out the paperwork for it, then was told by Viacom that they were pretty sure they weren't allowed to make this happen because of all the on-air time he could give a pack, and that may cross a line legally, so long story short, he had this whole farewell ceremony shredding the documents he used to start his pack. Then his guest on the show got to play the role of the lawyer who pointed out, actually, if you bring back those papers and slap on a cover letter, 
explaining this, this, and this about your pack, you can obtain a title as a super pack. As bizarre and silly as that sounds, you can, if you don't meet certain pack requirements, you can still become a super pack and surpass those requirements with the right changes. So when packs aren't allowed, sometimes you can say, oh no, I'm a super pack, and it works. Again, very simplified version, but that's what they got across in that segment. So of course then there's this this revival of his brand, and they just slap a super sticker on all of the logos and everything, graphics, all that. He also started selling a super pack pack, basically. A pack full of everything you need to start a super pack, which wasn't very much. So some people actually did. And the DIY kits suddenly went from a comedic bit to authentic political action. For example, one guy got a CNN interview about his new pack he created with the kit, Cats Making a Better Tomorrow Tomorrow. All about cats. And it's a very serious news anchor asking him about this pack about cats. The design for the logo, the papers he had to fill out to make this official, And when asked about his motivation for doing this, he said, well, I think cats are kind of ridiculous, and super packs are ridiculous, so it made sense. So this was not so much a unique bit as just pointing out already existing absurdities in the USA political system. There are many more examples I could give, but the bottom line is that it is very unclear where Colbert The performer, the comedy act, the person just telling jokes and playing up a persona, ends, and where who he is outside of that begins. And same with his fans, how much they truly just like his brand of humor versus how much they agree with him politically and therefore actually want to take concrete action and follow his lead in their own lives to point out the absurdities of certain political habits. That line's very blurry, too. So Colbert is ultimately such an epitome of what a TV personality is, where to some people, the substance matters less than the person conveying it, the message matters less to the media than the antics, and ultimately, personalities like this on TV think, while I have your attention, while I have you laughing, while I have you with your guard down, and on the same page as me. Let me teach you something, something really bizarre that needs no joking because this is already absurd and I'm just going to satirize it further. I'm just going to take the parts of life that feel like parodies on their own and kick it up a notch. So in some ways, television personalities like him have used their platforms to both share their view of the world with a like-minded audience and to kind of just give a scathing take covered up by laughs and lightheartedness on parts of society they deem as pretty messed up. The whole act is meant to be kind of ironic, and that irony never simplifies what they mean. It always complicates the picture of, wait, so what point are you trying to make here? It's meant to be a very actually complexly woven take on the current state of the world. There's this essay by Jonathan Gray called The News, You Gotta Love It that conceptualizes this concept of new fans. Now, this was written years ago, so the definition may have changed, but it's an interesting 
timestamp on, again, like I said before, this new sense of interactive television. Personalities on TV, not just providing one-sided entertainment, but actually feeding off of the audience, as Colbert said, you, the true heroes of the story, who are doing the right and smart thing to save the world, you're watching my show, and suddenly activating those people to actually become messengers of their worldview further. New fans, as he dubbed them, are those who combine their emotional investment in and feelings about current events with their emotional investment in and feelings about famous figures and their arguments. It's a fusion of comedy and just the news that, if done right, is not only seen as impressive and effective, but worth studying because it sure does reveal a lot about communities both at the micro and macro level. What topics animate them, and how can humor be used to further animate them, and keep up a mutually beneficial environment where the TV show prompts fans to act, and the fans in turn bring encouragement and viewers to the show. There's a different report that I will also link to on my show's newsletter. It was a study of the Colbert Report's effects through a sociological lens looking at the relationships between parody, politics, and fandom. It analyzed the power of irony and underscored the fact that when you, quote, blur the boundaries between affect and activism, it can be very, very powerful. In that piece I mentioned earlier, Gray talks about The Simpsons as well, in the power of parody and satire, irrational concepts in language that can, quote, lodge rational complaints and inspire rational thought. All of this is to say that just because the premise is so absurd sometimes doesn't mean that it will just exist on TV anymore. It has real-world implications and can truly affect how people feel about hard-hitting news stories that they just learned about in this quirky way. But it really can activate people. Think about the Super PAC example. That's, personally, I think, one of the best segments of the show ever because it summarizes the appeal, I think, so well. Because it not only teaches you what a Super PAC is, the Citizens United decisions impacts, and just the bizarreness of those circumstances, and the ease with which you can spend money in politics and form your own pack. It also lets you get in on the joke and add to the absurdity. As if it needed more absurdity on top of absurdity, it lets you add your own parody on top of his parody. He's literally selling you DIY kits to join the joke. Peak interactive audience. Peak new fans, as the concept is dubbed. Similarly, when he points out how weird it is to try to name a bridge after a famous person, he calls it out in a way that actually requires fans to get in on the action, to buy into the absurdity, and play it up even more. And again, the thing about irony is that it only complicates this and does not simplify. So if you're wondering, well, is it actually effective politically to play along with the concepts you're also satirizing, there's no clear-cut answer. It sure can inspire people to really think about, yeah, this is a bizarre premise, and think about their world in different ways, but then it also does perpetuate the same charade you're slamming as messed up.
theorist Linda Hutchin wrote about how irony requires this complexity to work, which allows for what she calls a trans-ideological status. It serves to simultaneously legitimize and delegitimize an argument and an explanation for something. She also noted that irony does constantly change in forms and definitions. Context and the time frame is everything. It adapts from situation to situation. So the effective use of satire in one situation may not work the next moment. But how much of a concrete impact does this type of thing actually have? Let's look at some of the past research on this, which I will, as always, link to on my site. There's this piece called Entertaining the Citizen that draws parallels between fandoms and political constituencies. Some of the similarities both have emotional investment, quote, without the effective investments resulting from enthusiasm and anxiety, political interest and commitment would falter, just like fan communities would wane without the emotional input of their members. Translation, you gotta just buy into absurd premises to keep it going. You gotta be willing to keep propelling the joke forward, or propelling the just authentic political goal forward. Second thing, similar activities are done. Fandoms have, quote, an intense individual investment in the text. They participate in strong communal discussions and deliberations about the qualities of the text, and they propose and discuss alternatives that would be implemented as well if only the fans could have their way, unquote. And that's ultimately what the piece argues politics is, it's discussion with like-minded people about how to shape policy, how to shape statements, how to change up your media appearances, how to change up your perception in the eyes of others, how to call out your opponent's perceived weak spots, how to tap into your fans' inner sense of emotional outrage or provoke rational thought in them, maybe as a result of something light and comedic. Similar things are at play here. In this old book called Channels of Power, The Impact of Television on American Politics, some interesting observations were already being made about this back in 1985. This author, quote, takes issue with the common understanding of television as a medium detrimental to the maintenance and encouragement of political citizenship. The author argues there is a three-dimensional similarity between the fan communities around entertainment genres and the political constituencies around candidates, parties, or ideologies. The analogy between the two is structural to begin with. Both come into being as a result of performance. Second, fan communities and political constituencies resemble each other in terms of activity, Finally, both rest on similar emotional investments that are intrinsically linked to rationality and lead, in concert, to effective intelligence. He argued then that, rather than reach a saturation point where audiences would say, I'm tired of being influenced by TV personalities and having that just be a fad that would fade into obscurity, he predicted then that TV personalities would only grow in influence. Thanks to three things. One is the replacement of vertical with horizontal communication channels. Not 
people higher up than you making a TV show, but also what we have now, which is direct-to-consumer communication through social media. Second was the rise in user-generated content, like the blogs, and fans doing other things to take the message of the personalities they adore into their own hands and spread the word. So more messengers, more communication channels, and third, changing audience expectations into, again, the new fans. This sense of an important parasocial relationship. There was another study in the 80s that, again, I'll link to on the site, researching the new left, as it was called politically in the 60s, and the conclusion of the study was that those who became the faces of the movement did have power, even in ways that may not look super easy to measure. But the face of the movement often held the power to change how outsiders perceived that movement and what actions the movement could take as a result of that outside perception. In other words, if you look at this data one way and decide, you know what, the impact of late night TV show hosts on politics is probably nothing because we can't see a quantifiable difference in this outcome or this outcome politically directly because of what they said or did. On the other hand, this argument is that you wouldn't overtly see a quantifiable amount of influence because it's all kind of a qualitative influence, one that's hard to measure in a study, one that is more implicit. Where now I think about super PACs and am reminded of Colbert's interpretation of them. That affects in turn how I feel about super PACs personally and how I will take action for or against them, I think you know which one, <laughs> going forward. So the impact is both appearing smaller than you think and bigger than you think. And to me, the big takeaway from this consensus is the emphasis on the similarities. I really like the way that Trevor Noah put it recently, actually, in an interview, that the word politic comes from people. Everything is political. Everything is about people. Everything you do in your daily life is about politics. And if you view politics as just a side interest, like, oh, I don't really follow politics or I'm not really into politics, that in itself is also political. You can't get out of it. It affects everything in our lives. And so when you really think about it, political constituencies and fandoms behaving in similar ways and there being an interesting overlap when it comes to certain political ideologies and fans of certain shows is only natural because politics is not this distinct concept away from all other aspects of public life. It is inherently a part of other aspects of who we are and what media we are into. And those links are something that is fully taken advantage of and called out by shows like Colbert's. All that being said, I do also want to draw some attention to a counter-argument which quantifiably argues overt political activism celebrities do does not actually have concrete results. One study looked at a couple of different groups of variables, one random sample of over 140 stars on Celebopedia, and then the other group of celebrities was from that year's Forbes 100 list. They then created this sort of star power ranking numeric system based on the number of Google searches in news stories about that person. They found that over 62% of the celebs in the Celebopedia random sample were engaged in what they would call 
some form of advocacy. More often than not, one specific cause they tied their name to. 90% of the celebs on the Forbes 100 list were engaged in advocacy and tended to be involved in a wider range of issues and group affiliations. The most common issues backed by these celebs, social welfare, child welfare, and health care. Least common, economic and business-related political stances. One more interesting finding, the highest star power ranking meant that person was twice as likely to be an advocate in terms of how the study defined advocate. But the lower the star power ranking, the greater variety of causes that celeb would attach their name to. My super broad takeaway from that is just frankly that celebrities champion certain causes and do have an impact on people because the media ends up promoting and amplifying those celebs' advocacy efforts, and the public is influenced by that media coverage. But the study also shows that there's an interesting back and forth between amount of exposure an issue gets and a celebrity gets in the number of causes they spread the word about. So just because their issue is getting a lot of attention does not mean that they are known to be successful championing more than one key issue. Another interesting study, an analysis of issues of People magazine and all the stories about celebs and their environmental advocacy. The big takeaway? Quote, we found that groups linked to more celebrities were slightly more likely to appear in a newspaper story with a celebrity, but that overall a group's total star power was not related to receiving more overall news coverage of the group, unquote. The majority of the advocacy groups mentioned in those magazine stories did not actually have any celeb name attached to them at all. 97% of the celebs got zero coverage of their environmental advocacy in 2006. And the study also showed that the average amount of celeb-linked environmental advocacy coverage was maybe four stories tops. And ultimately, that there was just no overtly causal relationship between the star power ranking numerically and their good deeds getting more coverage. Now, that celebrity might, as a result of their good deeds, end up getting more good coverage in people than they would have otherwise. But that doesn't necessarily translate into that star getting more coverage specifically about the advocacy issue they are championing. Yet another study tried to see if there was a correlation between references to celebrities and news coverage related to causes that are often viewed as just more overtly political. Like I said, everything is really political technically, but you get what I mean. So this study looked at how often the word celebrity was a part of New York Times news stories about global warming from 1981 to 2007. In the 1980s, the New York Times ran 347 stories about global warming. Four celebrities had mentions. In the 90s, that number of articles rose from 347 to 1,463. And the number of celebrity mentions rose from 4 to 11. 2000 and later... The number rose to 3,764 stories and 105 celebrity mentions. So just over time, more celebrity mentions came with more news stories. 
but not necessarily more celebrity coverage proportionally speaking. It just grew with the story count. The study's authors wrote, quote, Although it might be the case that upticks in a celebrity environmental advocacy generate simultaneous shifts in the news agenda, a more likely explanation is that a rising news tide lifts all boats, unquote. Those are three of the many main studies that I looked at that I thought were particularly interesting and did a good job summarizing the bottom line of the argument, which is that Celebrity endorsements are not nothing, but do they actually make a dent in political agendas? Not in measurable ways, compared to what you'd expect. Now, how they shift the conversation in qualitative ways could have a bigger impact than you thought. So this is not to just say, actually, celebrity influences on politics are nothing, but maybe just not in the ways you expected. Maybe more like through their joking commentary that triggers a new train of thought in viewers' heads, like Colbert does. So it's more of an indirect link to political views than you might think, but it's still there. Okay, one more story, just because I found a lot of this research really fascinating. OpenSecrets.org data was used by the Center for Responsive Politics to track celebrity campaign donations and the amount of times celebrities gave congressional testimony for any issue. The data reveal that celebrity political donations were about $8 million in the 1992 election year. That rose in 2004 to $27 million. And the 2000s have showed a rise in both the number of celebrities with congressional testimonies on their resumes now, and the amount celebrities are donating to politicians and political causes. In the time frame of 1969 to 2006, nearly 500 celebrities testified before Congress. It was averaging about 10 celebrity testifiers per year back in the 70s. Then it was up to about 20 on average per year, 1980 and beyond. However, Keep in mind that this makes up for about 0.6% of congressional hearings that took place within the time frame being referred to. The amount of people who contribute to congressional hearings, way more than you thought. And so celebrities, they may get a disproportionate amount of the news coverage for their time testifying, but they are less than wonderful percent of the people who have participated in those hearings for that year. So again, the point is brought home that while these numbers look impressive and celebrity influences on politics look undeniable, their influence might not necessarily be as impactful in the ways that we've always measured and thought about it. And this is part of the reason why I'm pointing to some of the studies done in the last decade and later, because I do think a lot of research does need to be updated. It would be interesting running these same experiments today because celebrity influence has changed so drastically, but knowing this basis for the celebrity political climate merging, I do still find valuable research to look at. And because in hindsight, the study's main suggestions for increasing the impact of celebrity advocacy in the future feels very interesting to read years down the road. Quote, we have argued that although celebrities are more active advocates than in the past, they are ineffective when it comes to shaping the mainstream political news flow. 
When considered in perspective of the overall news flow, even the most famous celebrity advocates do not shine very brightly in the mainstream news media. Again, that's why it would be so interesting to see updated studies about their impact because those vertical communication channels and turning to mainstream networks for news coverage do not look the same at all now. Three main conclusions from the study then. One, the traditional model of spreading the word about your political cause is getting increasingly ineffective and needs to change course. Two, star power is more helpful for brand awareness and campaign awareness than any actual concrete policy change and agenda setting. And three, two things can be true at once. It can feel like celebrities and politics are more linked than ever before, and celebrities can continue to operate in these spheres of influence that have little to no impact on the mainstream media conversations and the audience for that news. Now here's the part I find most interesting. Their predictions, which again, in hindsight, are really fascinating. Number one, quote, We predict a growing role for celebrities in American politics. Until recently, the major challenge for advocacy groups seeking change was wooing the media gatekeepers. As the media continue to fragment, citizens increasingly act as their own gatekeepers. Remember that phrase I used earlier, interactive audience, interactive television? We predict that groups will find celebrities and entertainment media increasingly important as mechanisms for targeting and attracting audiences. Unquote. Second of all, they predicted narrowcasting would continue. You know the phrase broadcasting, right? Narrowcasting is now the thing, where there's more micro-targeting of who you want your audience to be, who, who is your market. And lastly, quote, Without the need for objectivity, political messages may trend toward partisan appeals. Without competition within a shared system, groups will have no need to cover the same stories, cover the same information, or produce a public debate on a full range of issues. Without a mass audience, the political agenda may wind up more splintered and short-sighted. They ultimately concluded the phrase make noise, make news does not apply the same way as it used to, because there's so much noise being made and only so much news that's being made, especially because of the increased fragmentation of audiences. And the researchers ultimately seem to be saying it makes more sense to view celebrity activism not as a complement to mainstream institutional power, but more of its just completely independent thing, a way to sidestep gatekeepers to get a message out there. The power of celebrity activism, when there is that power, is kind of outside of traditional channels. It's not that celebrities quote-unquote getting political, is not impactful. The challenge comes with sustaining that impact and coverage. And that brings me to another television personality I'm going to talk about today. And I must disclose my extreme bias because he's my favorite, Trevor Noah. Look, I know I am on the millennial Gen Z cusp and technically Gen Z, but Times like these, I really feel like a millennial. While everyone else my age is watching Euphoria or whatever, I am such a nerd about watching The Daily Show. Anyway, what is it about The Daily Show with Trevor Noah that makes it so good? First of all, I think their social media team is top tier. They are so timely, 
with their parody videos, their memes, their tweets. They are just so on the ball and in tune with what's trending, what people are talking about online. So even though the show is in summer hiatus mode still, they keep the content going. So it's like, becomes a normal part of your routine to read funny posts from their accounts. They're still out there posting funny stuff throughout hiatuses and fun YouTube compilations of older clips of the show. They keep themselves on your mind and keep on the ball with viral trends and inside references if you are an extremely online person. So it's constant and it's timely. I also think the length has suited them well. Because as much as they do have very fun, quick content to look at, a TikTok video type thing, or a meme, they also have, like I said, those big compilations of older segments from previous seasons of the show. And remember, as I talked about in my episode of How to Stand, about influencers and how TikTokers really replaced YouTubers as the new social media darlings. YouTube really messed with YouTubers' popularity through a dent in the ascent of certain YouTubers after changing up their algorithms to prioritize longer content. And some of those YouTubers had a hard time adapting to the new algorithm that prioritized longer stuff. So while The Daily Show is still making that short-form stuff that people are still into, they are also probably benefiting from the algorithm that switched over time to favoring length of time spent on YouTube over the number of videos watched. Number of hours was prioritized more than number of videos. So that's the technical explanation for the show's success, I think. I also think the compilations and republishing of old content in brand new ways and just having this constant stream of new content released really all benefits it. They keep things very varied for different types of humor, different backgrounds added to stories, different context. They really do have the most diverse cast in Late Night and I really think that helps the show because the issues they talk about get to be explored by people who are overtly affected by them. And they get to lend a voice to something authentic and something they are passionate about. So everyone really gets to shine. It's just a beautiful display of how diversity is such a beautiful strength for any group of colleagues. And even just they're diverse in terms of their senses of humor, the topics that interest them. So there's a comedian cast member for every taste. I also think what stands out to me about this is how the show is somehow really, 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 really layered. And that is a very hard thing in today's media ecosystem. To still be making content that doesn't strip it of its context, that doesn't water it down too much, that doesn't end up inherently misrepresenting the complexity of an issue because it was watered down to be viewed as digestible for today's audience. But really just exploring all the nuances in a certain issue and having those really deep, in-depth conversations. And if they don't make the airtime, they post it on YouTube and they get more airtime. To explore issues in their fullness, I think, is their strength and personally what I love, because... You know, occasionally if I turn on CNN or something, sometimes I get so frustrated because they start to talk about a serious layered issue and then like less than five minutes later, it's, all right, when we come back from the break, this totally different story, or it's just answering a few questions with whoever they have on the air for like three minutes 
and then the segment's over. Like, and then I walk away from it thinking, what? There's so much to unpack there. You're just gonna say, yeah, and floods hurt this community harder than others. No time to explore why. Bye. Just for example, like, what? I always want to walk away from something I'm watching in thought and really pondering over what they said, thinking about things critically, and really just letting the content soak in. Not just moving on with my day and having it just have it be a part of my short-term memory. So to really explore issues and not feel like the audience's attention spans don't warrant that or that there are too many commercial breaks to get to or whatever the reasons are for them not having such deep dives on news shows, even though they're 24-7 news, I just think it's a bigger benefit to a show in the long run to not take their audience for granted as just looking for headlines and bite-sized coverage. I just really like the nature of the television equivalent of a lawn read, a think piece, something that a lot of thought and depth is added to. And you may think, yeah, there's no way that's going to be popular. I mean, The Daily Show is really popular. Call me naive, but I do think a lot of people really would, a lot more people really would watch certain TV shows if the format wasn't so obsessed with keeping your attention by pivoting topic to topic to topic, I really think that would be the opposite of boring to some people and could provoke this new sense of interest or outrage or passion in people over the things they're hearing. And that's what The Daily Show, I think, has done for me. Because, I mean, people do say that with certain late-night talk show hosts, well, they're really just preaching to the choir they're really not persuading anyone to think differently. I would disagree with that because that assumes that everyone views the world in a binary partisanship way, where if you have these liberal television personalities, their audience is primarily liberal-leaning and they're not working to win over anyone else and therefore they're just preaching to the choir what could they actually be doing to make a difference message-wise. And that is very much, I don't think, how the average American thinks about the world. My rant against just having a two-party system like we do in the USA, that's a rant for another day. But really, people have such an ideological spectrum, you never know who's watching and may agree with some tenets of your argument. And all you need to win them over is that extra time, allowing yourself that extra time to really get the story right and cover it with the depth and nuance it deserves. And I personally have walked away from watching certain Daily Show segments deep in thought about sometimes the psychology of what I watched, sometimes the ethical implications of the topic discussed. But I'm forming different opinions over time in a way that I find really valuable. Last thing will make sense in a minute. I want to talk about NCT and hoodies. If you listen to my other podcast, 17 Karat K-Pop, you know I am a ride-or-die N-Citizen. I just adore NCT so much, and I could go on and on about them. And you know that Trevor Noah has been wearing hoodies every night on his show since the pandemic shut down in-person live audiences for him. So not the suit and tie look, but just hoodies. There is a book called Television Personalities. Stardom and the Small Screen by James Bennett. Bennett argues that TV personalities ought to be granted the same level of legitimacy when it comes to their influence as TV and movie stars. 
Quote, Television's hybridity is central to its formation of celebrity, both in terms of hosting performers from other fields and of establishing television personalities' fame through intertextual discourses. Television's role in the production and reception of celebrity culture is therefore not reduced to the circulation of celebrities from other areas or to the manufacturing of celebrities, as in the case of reality television. This hybridity and openness to other fields of celebrity, mixed with the conception of television figures as ordinary, of appearing just as they are, has led not only to a devaluation of television personalities in their work, but also to the identification of television as the main contributor to a supposed cultural dumbing down, or, to other cultural critics, a process of democratization of fame. Bennett argues, quote, for a move beyond this binary, to focus instead on understanding the way television personalities, apparent familiarity, everydayness, ordinariness, and authenticity are clearly constructed. If reality television accentuated the idea that television produces fame for being just as you are, Bennett argues that television personalities, just as they are-ness, is not automatically granted, but rather the result of a process of construction. Basically, my translation of that is, people have argued forever that television is dumbing down the way people consume content and understand the world. And then other people take the opposite view and view it as an important democratizing force to spread a message more effectively than ever. And this author argues it's not that black and white. Maybe leaning into this formula of how to get news to people in effective ways and this sense of, as he said, just as they are-ness, just as you appear, not in a suit and tie, but just in a hoodie, that mixed with an intent and a conscious choice to present yourself that way is in its own a form of constructing how to send your message. In other words, I disagree with parts of his premise, but basically I agree with what he says about how, no matter how it's authentic or not, television personalities, just as they are-ness, taps into the same appeal as reality TV stars. They're kind of in some ways just like you, and they are here to tell you what they think you should hear and learn from. So that kind of helps explain why people might be more open, actually, to listen to what a guy has to say when he's just in a hoodie, presenting that just as they are-ness, like, hey, although it may be behind the scenes an intentional effort to look casual, at the same time, it is a way to let viewers' guards down, and be more open to and receptive to what that person's saying. So why I bring NCT into this is because I view who I am in some very different realms. I'm very into politics, love The Daily Show, love that kind of coverage, love being a super nerd and checking out political podcasts, all of that nerdy stuff. And then there's the me that my listeners know, you guys know, who is all about fandom culture, stan culture, and of course a lot of K-pop content, and is just really into pop culture commentary, and giving my two cents on all things music and pop culture at large. You know I actually freaked out about this for a second on my 17 Karat K-pop podcast. The Daily Show had a special called Remotely Educational. It was a comedy special for basically remote learning 101. It was a fun faux 
instructional video of sorts, and they had the most random NCT-127 subunit cameo during the special to remind us of the importance of reading. And me, being the dork that I am, really freaked out at hearing that because my worlds were colliding for the very first time. I was like, oh my gosh. I watch NCT content religiously. I watch The Daily Show religiously. And now they're both together. My worlds are merging in a way I never expected. It was a five-second silly, ridiculous, unexplained cameo. But it made my day. And I think that sums up my all-encompassing argument in today's episode. The interactive evolution of television content. The interactive expectation now of, of media content. Just as the artists of these people... The sense that you are part of their act, part of the situation, you're a part of something. I see the big deal with shows that really, really take off, like Trevor Noah's version of The Daily Show. The continued relevance there is because it allows for that hybridity of parts of your life. When you are a part of the act, you can be part of the act. You in all of your you-ness. You don't have to bring one side of yourself to the table. You could bring multiple sides of yourself to the table and see the connections. They do not require you as a viewer to compartmentalize who you are and only show up to viewing, to tuning into the show, with just your politics hat on or your climate news nerd hat on or your pop culture news hat on. You can have all of those interests and tune into the same episode of the same show as so many other people with diverse interests, and all take something away from the show, and all feel like you are part of the act. Then not having to sacrifice part of yourself to be another part of yourself, there's such joy in that, in feeling like you are fully being yourself. So when I'm seeing on my screen a Daily Show logo next to NCT, that is such a moment for me because I'm so used to never overtly bringing up tons of political stuff on my podcasts, and never mentioning K-pop in A serious setting, I guess you could say. But realizing that life is more complex than short TV segments make it out to be is a moment that is very freeing for you to just love a diverse array of things. And there's a similar nice merging of what you consider a parody or reality, silly or serious, satire or a genuine belief, when those lines are blurred as well. At the end of the day, these late-night shows get to the essence of what being human is, which is existing in that weird, blurred line place where you are constantly shifting at how you view things, what you find funny, what you take seriously, what gets you excited, what gets you passionate, who are you? And these shows hold a mirror up to us to show us who we are and possibly persuade us to tell our reflections who we want to become. I think this effect is present on a lot of shows as well, and even just in The Daily Show, they've parodied The Bachelor, they've parodied America's Got Talent, and the ways they bring politics into pop culture, I think allows a bunch of different fandoms to have a moment watching their show where they feel like, oh my gosh, I never thought both sides of me could get to come together like this, and being able to bring those parts of yourself together and not hiding one over the other, is more freeing and powerful than you could ever imagine. Again, maybe not in ways this research is quantifying, but in ways that, without being measured, can be quite profound nonetheless. 
That is all from me today. Thank you all for listening as always, and I will talk to you all again very, very soon.